Welcome to the Something Something Experience Podcast, episode 13. I'm Ash Jones. My co-caster, Michael John Simpson, and I started this podcast to give voice to our passions. This week, our guest is animation storyboard artist Christian Roman. Christian invited us to his office at Pixar Studios in Emeryville. Michael drove up and recorded the episode. However, disaster struck and we lost part of the episode. We then rescheduled a Skype conference with Christian, and we all continued the conversation. So you'll hear a skip where the first recording ends and the continuation begins. We talked to Christian about 2D and 3D animation, improv, Burning Man, Toy Story 3, The Simpsons, Mission Hill, Disney, experimental animation, Fillmore, Pixar, the creative process, spoilers, and The Hobbit. So here it is, episode 13 of the Something Something Experience. There we go. So, um, so everything about? I told you before this was a lie. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's why we had to delete it yes. to start over. Uh, okay. Yeah, we have to relate. Yeah, the powers that be said that like, what I said was unacceptable. <laughs> um, so let's see. Um, yeah, since I was down in LA, I um, 2007 was on the Simpsons movie and got a call from a friend. Up you were storyboarding for The Simpsons I, I, and see. for Disney as well, right? Yeah, yeah I, start, I started off on The Simpsons and then went to Disney Television and directed two series um, Mission there. Hill and... Uh, no, Mission oh. Hill was actually before Disney. That oh, was, okay. That was Film Roman. Um, no, Fillmore. Disney's Fillmore, which right. was Shafted Middle School. Yes, yes. Uh, which was awesome. <laughs> and then uh, I... Stayed at Disney TV for a little while, and then another show came up called uh, Jake Long, American Dragon, mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. uh, helped develop that and directed the first season of that. And then the Simpsons movie started, and I was like, well, I, I felt obligated to... I loved working on the Simpsons, so I left Disney Television to storyboard on the Simpsons movie. Plus, it was a, a my, would be my first feature gig. And then, while in the middle of that, got called... By Pixar, by a friend of mine who had worked on The Simpsons and was the story, a head of story on Wally. Ah. And uh, he called and said, Hey, you want to come work at Pixar? And I thought, uh, Awesome. Yeah. Uh, like like <laughs> yeah. you do. Like yeah, you do. like you do. And uh, <laughs> just uh, packed up everything. And um, plus, it was an opportunity. I've been down in LA for so long and like kind of working from job to job to job. Right. I wanted to right. have a, a, a place to like camp. And Pixar was a great opportunity, so I just packed, we packed up everything and moved up here. Um, as coincidence would have it, um, at the same time we got the call from Pixar, we found out that my wife was pregnant, uh-huh. and we're like, "Oh, hey, we'll we'll move in the middle of a pregnancy and, and joy, uh, joy." And uh, once we got up here, my my daughter was born like five months later, um, and. Uh, it's been great. It, like I, I came up here. My first job was on uh, Toy Story three, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which they kind of put me in as as like a training ground. Like, well, there's this guy from television. We don't know if he's going to yeah, be any yeah, good. Yeah. And uh, those TV guys, you TV watch guys. Out exactly. For <laughs> They're, uh, so that that was a, a great training ground, and it was really like because I, I loved the Toy Story movies, and so it was I was familiar with the characters and. Did you do character design or development, or were you just helping story? Story, just helping story. Okay. Um, now, are you doing storyboard by hand, or are you doing it on computer now? Funny you should say that. Um, we're basically doing it on computer, but it's still hand drawn. Okay, I mean, so you're using like a Wacom tablet yep, or whatever. That's yeah. a Cintiq, as it's called, as we call it in the biz. Well, well, um, and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean they're, they're hand drawn, but it's different. The way it had been done before, especially here. at 
Pixar was you drop things on pieces of paper. As I as I brought, oh. as you, you can see, he has a, an official pad, pad of a paper and, and pen pencil, pencil, pen, which is pencil. This is pencil. The, the the Amish use these. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because they they, they do, don't plug in at in all. In lieu of buttons, exactly. They have a pencil. Pencils, <laughs> and uh, so you would draw on a paper, and then you'd pin it up on these as these black boards behind me. Oh yeah, um, so, and there's lots of concept art, around, yeah. original concept art from different previous movies, movies around. There's, yeah, yeah. It's it's all to let you know what Pixar's done. Cool. And um, but we we put them on a board, and then you'd you'd pitch, and as cool as that is, because you'd be standing up in front of the director and kind of like uh-huh. getting into it. Um, oftentimes you'd be on like drawing three and you'd look at the director and his eyes were down like at the bottom of the page they'd like looking ahead and you're like stop stop so the benefit of doing it uh, digitally now is that we'll draw it in the computer and then we'll sit the director in front of a screen, a screen. and we'll click through click so he can't through. see he can't ahead, ahead. That's <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, and it, it's really great because it's also it has a more cinematic feel because when you're locked on one frame you you can't Right. This, it's almost like watching a movie. Yeah. Whereas um, the other is more like a a those old timey uh, inventions, the pieces of bound paper <laughs> called a book. book. A book. book. A book. book. I, I, I think I've heard of that. I think they saw them in Europe. Mm-hmm. I've, um, seen, I've seen them in museums. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so uh, yeah. So the, we do that, and the the one drawback though now is that you're sitting. And when you would pitch before, you'd be standing, and it was a lot more like improv. Right. That's, of course. That's we are familiar with. Yes. That's that where we met many years so ago. So I would imagine, so that, that's something that never occurred to me before, the storyboarding process. When you're in a room bouncing ideas off with a director, a bunch of writers, and you're an animator, and other animators are other storyboarders, right. that's like an improv It's gig. totally an improv that's like That's like, yeah. In fact, so, one, of, one of the basic kind of... Um, Mottos about the, the kind of the philosophy of Pixar is improv in that you know it's a yes and climate yeah. where you come into a room a story room and someone will come up with an idea like say you've got uh, you know two characters like let's just go back to like Toy Story three and you've got like Buzz and Woody and they're like hey they how about they you know they put on a show and on the surface of it you might go well that's not a good idea but. In, in our room, we'd be like, yeah, and they, you know, they get dressed up in crazy costumes, and then someone right. else says, yeah, and then they do, they, they do a hula, and, and yeah, then and then... One of them grabs one of the crayons and right. draws a set behind them or something. So, so right. what ends up happening is that you, you may start with what, on the surface, may seem like a bad idea, but by having a yes-and climate, you build on and it, it and make it a great idea. Because, I mean, if you look at most of the Pixar stories, they're not... They, the root of them is not very original oftentimes. It's like, it's a buddy picture, or it's, you know, uh, you, know you look it up, it's an old man. <laughs> like, and a, boy scout, how, yeah, and a boy scout. How is that going to be good? But then, by having that climate of yes and, and people building on it and making it better and better and better, you end up with a great product because everybody's on board together uh-huh, making right. ma- making good. And as we learned, one of our best sketches in our sketch group mm-hmm. was the one that we all wrote together. One right. of the best ones we did was, was the one we wrote together. Right. Not to chew our own horns, right. but yeah, of course. Right. Inc- <laughs> coincidentally, uh, uh, speaking of Up, um, the guy who won the costume contest at work dressed as the Up guy. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Just the Up kid. The Just the Up kid. Nice. Um, um, I'll, I'll take you around later. There's a picture. Um, we, we have a, a kind of a gallery and there are pictures from different times of at Pixar. And um, the head of story on Up, uh, a man uh, named Peter Stone, uh, who's now a director here, but he is Russell. 
Wow. He, he is like the spitting image of cool. Russell. They were based basically nice. Russell on him. Nice. So you can't, if, if there was a costume contest, he would, would be win yeah, everybody yeah. else. It's funny, I was out in the lobby waiting to come in and, and I saw the, uh, the Lego Buzz and Woody. Mm-hmm. And I had just seen a picture of that on Facebook or online somewhere <laughs> that somebody said, oh wow, look at this awesome Buzz Lightyear and Woody made out of Legos. And there it is. I just saw it in person. <laughs> I was like, wow. I, yeah. Somebody touch my hand. You can touch it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a uh, it's kind of cool to work here and feel like you know there's so much love outside the company oh, for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but it's also a little disconcerting too because you know it's it's where I work and you see all these people walking through like oh uh, and. And like, you're like, I'm just I work here. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, my job. Yeah. It's kind of like if you work at a bank, right? And people were walking through like, ooh, money, ooh, wow. money. <laughs> like eh, it's a nice fixture. Yeah, and it, 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 it's here. it's nice, but you know, I I, I do. I, I oftentimes I have. It's nice to see people to remind me that oh, this is a really cool place to work because sometimes yeah. you're just so head down. Right, right. Well, a job is a job is a job. I mean, right. there's going to be elements where it's like, oh, you've still got to get up at X, X o'clock in the morning and drive and you know, right. commute and, and have coffee and go to work and actually produce something <laughs> by the end of the day. And, and yeah. yeah, so, but, you know, but, but the end result, yeah. I mean, I, doing something creative, I mean, it's one of the reasons why Ash and I started the podcast was because we wanted to, we have very kind of mundane IT kind of jobs that are very, you know, kind of thing. And we wanted to do something that, that gave voice to our passion, as we say in the intro, and, and just do something that, that was a creative outlet. And it's actually been kind of lighting that fire under us to go and do other things, well, too. Well, that's great. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and the one thing that they hammer over and over and over again is, go make your thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is what we're doing. So. It's funny. Actually, The one of the other really great things about Pixar, and one of the things that makes... <laughs> you talk a lot about Pixar. What, do you work for I actually, you know, there's this... I hope to someday. <laughs> But right now, right now, I just kind of wander in through the gate, and they, they don't know the empty office. I just took in again today. <laughs> um, no, I, the one of the things that actually is really inspiring, but also kind of um, daunting here too, is that a lot of people have their like own projects outside of Pixar, and mm-hmm. Pixar is really uh, supportive of that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, a lot of my friends in story have comic books and things right. that they, oh, yeah. they put out. Nifty, and it's it's amazing, and just just to see the level of talent. Because also, I mean. As cool as it is to work at Pixar and make these stories, a lot of, they're, they're very kind of general audience, family-oriented stuff, and sometimes there are people that want to do things that are a little darker right. or a little bit like... Like one of my friends, uh, Ted Mathlot, has this book called Cora, which is all about mm-hmm. these two women um, in the Civil War. And uh, uh, I'm sorry, Rose and Elizabeth Cora is the new one, but the two women in the Civil War and, and you know surviving on their own, and right. it's really dark and gritty, and it's not necessarily something that Pixar would ever make, but it, it's his outlet for that part of his creativity right, to right, like, right. put it out there. Sure, sure. Yeah. So well, that's it, that's good. Well, the one thing that I that when when um, I remember when Pixar movies first started really hitting and 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 you know quite a while ago and was thinking okay animation shifting towards a 3D mm-hmm. kind of a 3D computer animated environment and it's like well oh I feel bad for all those people who draw hand animation and do this and that but a, a lot of the stuff that I see around here is hand drawn right. it's drawn by still drawn by hand and and there's like you said you got people doing comic books and things like that all the all the traditional art elements are still here right. just the end product is is rendered on a computer, but it's still all that traditional art sensibility right. that goes into it. And, the, and especially the storytelling element. Yeah. The thing that I've always liked about Pixar is 
even in times when other animated uh, ventures or properties fell short here and there for various reasons, the one thing that always is the common thread through Pixar's uh, products is or uh, properties is that they the storytelling of that that grand, rich, fully formed well-rounded three-dimensional character story human storytelling is there well let me uh, two things about that um the first thing I, before we I move on is the aspect of the hand-drawn the there's a gallery here that before every uh, movie that pixar makes comes out they'll set up a gallery of all the physical artwork pre-production artwork that was done before a movie and so many times they'll bring people up there to look at it and they'll go like i had no idea that there was so much hand drawn work and it's it's not only a cost effective way to develop the movie but it's also it, it's it's richer there's something about mm-hmm. making things uh, even mm-hmm. they, they sculpt the characters in clay before they make them in a computer right. just to like see them and kind of f- figure them out because th- there's something about that kind of physical hand drawing and, and hand working of artwork that really kind of is, is resonant and it it's richer than just Solely working in a computer, and it's um, like not a lot of people realize it. The second thing is uh, the storytelling aspect that not a lot of people realize about Pixar is that you know each movie takes four years to make, mm-hmm. and the first three is story. And the way we do it is that we'll you know have a group of ten story artists, and we'll all get like two or three sequences in the movie and draw it out in a four to seven, four to six month period, and put it into an avid. Add sound, add scratch dialogue. Yeah, cinematic. A cinematic, right. or a, we call it an animatic. An animatic. Uh, and, sorry, sorry, I meant <laughs> And uh, we'll watch it, and the, the whole studio will watch it oftentimes, and, and everyone gets to give notes. And then we'll go back to the drawing board and do it again, and then go back to the drawing board and do it again. And, and we'll do maybe seven or eight iterations of the story before we even start animating it. So that's one of the reasons why the stories are so good, because the first three or four are terrible and like yeah you, lo- you look at the first reels of like Toy Story and it's it's just grating and horrible and you, you need to have that kind of uh, reiteration again and again of like f- making the story good because it's not like we're like right out of the gate telling amazing stories it, it's, it's always this um, pattern of making things hard and that's the thing that's funny because there's a lot of studios in LA that will come here and go like hey what's your secret what's the Pixar secret and we'll say well it's not really a secret we'll just we, we spend time to make the stories like, like three years like, oh we don't have time for that and so, good luck <laughs> so like it's, it's amazing when a good movie does come out because you're like well right. through that kind of quick process they it's, it's more unusual to me that there are good movies because they have to go through that kind of quick process yeah I mean some of, some of the uh, some of the products that came out of that that other studio in Burbank. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> some of those are pretty damn good too, and, yeah. and you could tell that they spent a lot of time in right. the story and gave the story. You have to have that real good human emotional drama mm-hmm. in there, right. the stuff that people can actually identify with, and blah blah blah. Otherwise, I mean, you. you I was thinking back um, when you were talking about the the animation product process and 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 the three D modeling to kind of bring it to life and humanize it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, you look at early computer animation, it all feels very cold and right. very sterile. And 
you think about like a lot of early like even like electronic music or electronic created things and there's a very there's a coldness and a technicality to it that pulls out some of the human element right. which is fine for something like a Kraftwerk or whatever where it's you know very you know fine fine kind of thing <laughs> but, but then right right but then later the a lot of the electronic they've gone back the electronic acts have now gone back in the last 15 years toward analog mm-hmm. uh, synthesizers things like things that with warmth like Boards of Canada, if you listen to it, and it has that warmth to it. There's, yeah. a, there's a nostalgia factor, and it feels organic, and it feels something, and it's so it penetrates your soul more. Well, so yeah, even and even like when you look at like Daft Punk or something, and they'll sure. take you know um, disco tracks that right. just have like this kind of right. ha- heart to it. Then that last use album that. by Daft Punk yeah. was all analog. They right. got but they went into got a disco producer from the <laughs> '70s, and they went into the studio and played analog instruments, and then put those into the computer and made their album. Well, that's the thing. A lot of uh, new animation students discount is that uh, I used to teach and I'd get certain animation students that didn't know how to draw right and I said well you need to learn that that kind of human part of it the, the handheld part of it before you can get into animation because they just assume that well it's in the computer I can just manipulate the characters no. I don't need to know no. all the other you stuff. have to have a feel for it and yes yeah. and, and I uh, one of our mutual friends, uh, Sarah, we, I used to go to the zoo with her all the time. Sarah oh, yeah. Anderson oh, yeah, used to yeah, go Sarah. to the zoo with her all the time. And I would, she would bring her sketchbook and she would spend all day. We would go and spend three, four hours and she would spend all day sketching the animals and, and starting with those round circles right. for all the muscle groups and, and forming a picture that looked like something real. It wasn't just a stick figure with spots on it. You know, it was, it was, it looked like a real living thing captured in a moment mm-hmm. and yeah you have to you have to put that breathe that life back into it right. and like you said the richness comes through mm-hmm. from the hand drawing it's funny I thought you were going to say Kitty because she's more well, and more recently Brown, yeah. Right, yeah, and she yeah. was one of my students at, at the good yeah yeah and she says hello by the way <laughs> okay. she was very excited that we were going to come up and had until recently had no idea no idea that you two knew each mm-hmm. other because you and I have known each other for so long and I've yeah. known Kitty since she was 19 and we started doing art shows together uh, at goth clubs in right. LA I was doing photography and she was showing her crazy, crazy you know artwork and yeah. paintings and stuff and so yeah no, she she so, started out trying to be an animator yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she wasn't good. she wasn't bad yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah she yeah, a lot of very fond memories and says hello and all that cool. so that's good uh, what else well, everything. I mean, so so back to Toy Story three. Actually, right? wait a minute before we okay. before we go on. I've been thinking about the thing that I want to talk to you about. Oh, me. So, because uh, this is something you know about me, but I, and I've asked you, and I don't know why you haven't decided to go to Burning Man yet. Because you know, I think you would have a great time, <laughs> and I I've, I'm six year burner now, and. I don't. I don't know why you have such a. a I mean, it's dirty. I'll give you that. Okay. Okay. Um, there's things I like about Burning Man. Okay. okay? Uh-huh. Um, I like. I like the idea of a, of communal living. Mm-hmm. Number one, I like the idea of like barter system and all that okay. that kind of goes along with the whole right. communal. It's a gifting community. It's not yes. barter. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, but I, I like that. That okay. pay it forward mentality, right. and you help your brother out, and blah okay. blah blah. I like that. I do like that. And I agree with that very much as a worldview kind of thing. Okay. Um, I like naked people. Okay. So there's that. I do like that too. Um, uh, I like some of the other activities that go along with Burning Man. Mm -hmm. um, Some of the more adult activities that go along with Burning Man. I don't mind any of that. The one major problem I have Mm -hmm. is the heat. Yeah. I myself... 
very, very sensitive to heat. Okay. And I know I live in Valencia. You live in, yeah. live in Valencia, <laughs> like, wait a minute. one of the hottest parts of Los Angeles. If you can take that, you can take uh, the heat there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, but, I, and the other thing, I like camping. You know, uh-huh. I like camping. That's something else I like. There's lots of things I like about camping, but in the con column, that whole heat thing. Really? That's the one is thing? Is the one thing that really I would not be able to do. Well, I mean... Honestly, you if you go with some people in an RV and you just like sit in the RV all day during the heat, and then you go out and, at night and, and it's like and fifty use degrees. How much gas to, to generate? It's, you know, you, you, just a little bit, and then you just turn it off, and it's nice and cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's not that hot. Yeah. I mean, especially if you live in Valencia, yeah, well, it's not. It's it's comparable. There's a big difference between 103 and 120. It's difference. never it's never gotten to 120. Mm. It's got it's gotten to maybe. 103, maybe. Really? Yes. Oh, come on. Yes. No, I'm serious. It's never gotten to 120. I remember a day in 2011 or 2012 in August where it was 113 degrees in Los Angeles. Wow. But but see, the, at um, Gerlach, the Black Rock City, is at a higher elevation. It's almost like 4,000, 5,000 mm-hmm, feet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it gets hot. Yeah. It doesn't get that hot. It's like and, a hot plane. And it's like a dry heat. Plane. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah. Um, so it's a sauna. No, see, the, the the thing that I love about Burning Man, and it kind of comes to back to bring it back to Pixar and to um, San Francisco in general, is that it's probably one of the most creative places you will ever go in mm-hmm. your life oh, yeah, because yeah. every single person there is trying in some way or another to be creative and sure. to contribute. Sure. And to be around 60,000 people all trying to, like, to be creative in some way, whether it's like a costume or art or music or performing theater or, you know, just like setting up a hug deli where you give different kinds of hugs. I mean, it's, it's just... I'll have a hug on Ryan. Hug on Ryan. Hold the mayo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's, it's just overwhelmingly positive and yeah, fun. And I, and, and, and I know so many burners. I'm very good friends with a lot of burners. I don't know if you know Heather Holgeen or uh, Edward Holgeen and Heather Osborne. They're there every year. Um, yeah, I know a lot of Wendy Wagoner. I know a lot of people who go to... I know a lot of people who go to, who go to the burn every year. Okay. And, but I just, I just can't... I, I just couldn't hack the. I'm just the, saying, your life will not be complete until you have gone to Burning Man, and then I don't think I could drag my wife to it either. You I don't. Just, you, you don't have to bring her. I think my wife would be like. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not See, gonna. my my wife is the same way. My my wife Doesn't went to go. my well, my wife went to art school, and she's like, I've seen it. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So I mean, I've been to a few desert raves, like camping raves. Not the same. No, not no. the same. And it's that's the funny thing is that there's so many people that have this that's kind more of drugs less less naked people yeah it, it, so many people have this kind of expectation of what burning man is and there's no way to put any kind of expectation on it because it is so many different things and it's not just a rave and it's not just a place where people do illegal drugs and it's not a place where people you know it's a, it's also a place where people bring their kids and it's a place oh, I where know, people I know. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. do like lots of art and they do like there's a TEDx there and like it's it's amazing. So, uh, and I, like I said, I think that you, out of any of my friends, would probably benefit from it. So, uh. Uh, so yeah. So I guess we're starting from where we left off uh, last time when our uh, my lovely iPad decided to crap out and not uh, not record any more uh, of the of the podcast for some weird reason. 
we were talking about Burning Man, and you were mm. trying to convince me to go. And I think we had actually just wrapped up that conversa- that part of the conversation. Um, Did we? Uh, well, <laughs> obviously, in your mind, in order to wrap up the conversation, I would have to actually go to Burning Man. Yeah. That's <laughs> <the thing. laughs> Ashes, have you ever been to Burning Man? Uh, no, I've never been. Um, I would love to go. I've heard a lot of stories about Burning Man. Like and, you do. Um, my uh, my girlfriend actually knows someone who goes every every year, and um, uh, this guy published a book called The uh, People uh, from Burning Man. Uh-huh. And it's really fascinating stuff, man. It's uh, it's almost like a cultural movement, I would say. It, it is, and like I was saying to Michael before, that I, I think... Just because I don't know you, but I know Michael, and I know that he it would be something that he would enjoy, just because it's such a, a creative explosion and just a really um, amazing place to go. So, if if you enjoy um, being hugged a lot and uh, <laughs> um, seeing a lot of stuff on fire and um, be having like vivid hallucinations, but not being on any kind of drugs at the time. Wow, what That's, kind of drinks oh. do you serve in this place? Yeah, I know. Uh, none, <laughs> And later the universe will be exploding for your pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little hitchhiker. That sounds talk. fascinating, actually. Um, it's, yeah, as long as, I, uh, as long as I'm not forced to uh, take any drugs, I'll, I'll go. There's no, <laughs> <laughs> no one forces you to do anything, man. It's just all peace and love. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. so uh, that's that. So uh, then, then uh, obviously I said something brilliant, and then we talked about how <laughs> amazing I was, and then it cut out. Yes. <laughs> um, actually, I know Ash wanted to ask you some questions about uh, Toy Story Three, and I sure. know you and I had touched on that some in the part of the recording that didn't get taken. So, Ash, okay. go ahead and fire away. Yeah, I mean, I actually wanted because I, I thought, um, you know, I think it's. Amazing! Actually, I grew up watching uh, uh, Mission Hill. Mm-hmm. Oh and, yeah, uh, and Recess and all that stuff. So that's pretty cool. But I actually, I went to film school a few years ago, and we had um, a guest uh, go to our school for a few days, Tony Bancroft, and uh-huh. uh, I got to speak to Tony about the process, the animation process, and how he developed uh, all, all those famous characters, uh, like you know. Um, the the parrot from Aladdin whose name escapes me, uh, Timon yeah, yeah. uh, and yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's the name. <laughs> <laughs> and he mentioned something really interesting that that um, Mike told me that you 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 sort of um, said the same thing, and that's that animators have to be actors as well. When you're developing a character, you have to, uh, in order to animate it properly, sort of act out the scenes and 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 the dialogue and develop. You know, develop it through the process of acting. Yes, absolutely, and uh, even more so I, for me personally. I I think that impro- improvisation helps in that as well because a lot of times you're given a sequence or a scene, and you have to. It might be doing like, like you're a, a toy doing something. You you ha- can't just do it like a human. You have to think. Well, I don't have it. Like Woody, I don't have any bones. So how would he move around? Um, there's a great. Um, in fact, I just watched the final. Uh, there's a, a special coming out on December second called "The Toy Story That Time Forgot," and uh, I did storyboard. I storied on it's bleh, I did story on that as well. And but there's a great scene with Woody 
battling um, a battle sword, which is uh, the new toys that they discover. And the way he avoids being hit, it's just his whole body kind of twists and contorts without any bones. And you know, as an animator or even a story person, you really have to think in terms of movement and acting, and you can't just... It, Anybody else doing that scene would just think of it in terms of, well, a human, how would I like move like Neo or something and do kind of movements that a normal human could still do. But if you get up and improvise, you start to let your body go and start to really explore what Woody can do. And you have to get into his mind. You have to be, be Woody in a way. Um, so, yeah, it's really helpful. Um, I also find that you know if I'm doing a, a scene for me, I mean I'm in story, so animators a lot of times they'll get a scene and they'll know what has to happen. But for me, a lot of times I'll get a scene and the direction is okay. Woody and Buzz have to escape this room. What do they do? And so that's when I really have to improvise and start coming out. Okay, shooting out a lot of different ideas. Like well, maybe they could use this toy, or maybe they could like turn over the blocks and, you know, climb up, uh, you know, use um, monkeys that hook together and all sorts of things. So I have to improvise and use my brain that way. So improv really helps. By rehearsing improv gets my brain limber to be able to do those, answer those kind of story questions. Now you actually started an improv group at Pixar, didn't you? Yes. We, we call ourselves the Improvables. <laughs> Um, yeah, we had a lot of different ideas for names, but um, and, and everybody threw out ones. But that one, because we wanted to kind of hearken to something that was Pixar, we we changed from the Incredibles to the Improvables. Um, and we've been about three years now going. Um, improv has always been really strong at Pixar. They've always had classes and a presence, and even one of the greatest story artists at Pixar, a guy named Joe Ranft, um, who. He was a story artist at Disney, and he'd worked on A Nightmare Before Christmas, and he was he was the heart of Pixar for a long time about story. But he was also a great improviser, and so when I got to Pixar, I I took the classes, but I was really surprised that there wasn't a group because I figured, well, improv is so integral to the process at Pixar, there should be something there. So I got a bunch of people that had been taking the classes and. We started doing performances in some of the little uh, screening rooms at Pixar and just kept doing it. It's a lot of fun. Cool, cool. I think it's so fascinating what, what Pixar has done, uh, not only in animation, but with storytelling. Uh, I know that Pixar has pioneered different ways of creating characters and, um, you know, just establishing the arc and all that stuff. And it's just really amazing how every movie just knocks it out of the park, man. Well, and, um, I know that it takes uh, it takes you guys years to put it together, um, but again, like every, every movie is fascinating. And I can't wait for the next one. Um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you something real quick, though. How was it working with uh, with The Simpsons? Oh yeah, it was great. It was different. Um, the way I kind of describe it is that where on The Simpsons, I, I don't have an allegory for it or metaphor. It's just <laughs> um, with The Simpsons, you get a script. And I would have to draw what the script says. Now, a lot of times the scripts were very uh, loose. Um, it was just they'd have the dialogue and maybe a sentence or two per page describing the action. So we had a lot of leeway about how we would choose angles and how we would stage things. 
So in that sense, there was creative freedom. But for the most part, if I had an idea for a joke or if I had an idea for you know something the characters could say, I wasn't really part of that process. Um, I could make suggestions to the director and maybe he would get in. I, I have, in my history of like five or six years, maybe seven years of doing Simpsons work, I have three jokes that made it in to The Simpsons. Um, my oh, favorite was I did storyboards for... There's an episode where Lisa discovers that um, bullies are attracted by pheromones. And like the nerd pheromone, they, she realized that the, the smell of nerds made uh, bullies go nuts, and so that's why they were attacking kids. Um, it's true, it's true. It, it's true. But at the end, the, the way the I was doing the third act, and the way it ended was that um, they were at this scientific conference, and the bully that Lisa had brought in, because it was a scientific conference, the bully was going nuts and just beating up on all, all the scientists, because they were all nerds. And it just ended like that, and the, the family's in the back laughing, ha, ha, ha. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny, because everybody watching The Simpsons is a nerd, uh, that the bully would look at camera, go nuts, and attack the camera. Oh, fourth wall, yeah. Fourth wall. Nice, so I, nice. I put that in there as an alt, and the writers loved it, and so they, they kept it in, and I felt very proud. Like, that was my joke! Nice, I think I remember that one. It wasn't the name of the pheromone, something like, like, points... I love anything that uh, breaks fourth wall. Uh, there's been a lot of my favorite moments and in, in, in movies and shows that that they they bring the audience into the into the show, being aware that they're there. And I've always liked that. One of my favorite moments of all time was in uh, was in um, uh, Trading Places. When the, the the two brothers are are explaining to Eddie Murphy's character how the stock market works, and he they and he describes a BLT or a bacon lettuce bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich, and Eddie Murphy just looks up at the camera guy. These motherfuckers think I'm stupid. <laughs> I just love that look. Uh, um, Mo- Moonlighting did that a lot too. Go ahead. To finish your. To finish answering the question, though, uh, so that's the way things would work on The Simpsons, whereas at uh, Pixar, because it's a feature, the story artists are asked to not only bring their visual storytelling, but also their just storytelling, because we're, we're in a room at the beginning with like nine other guys, the writer, and the director, head of story, and we're all discussing the plot, and we're discussing the arcs of the characters, and the structure, and trying to fix story problems all together, and our input is a lot more um, asked for and encouraged in feature, whereas um, in television, it's usually, the, the writers are kind of off on their own doing stuff, and the, and the artists are, are just an arm, for the most part, whereas at Pixar, we're a lot more... Um, called upon to contribute to the process. Has it ever happened in your experience where the story artist actually ends up changing the script? Because you know you, you come up with something that's really good, and, and, and you know the writers and director like it so good that they, they change something that's seminal in the character or a big part of the script. Oh yeah, all the time. I mean, I'm trying to think of a, an example, but I mean on, on on Toy Story three there weren't a lot of changes because the plot initially was really solid so there wasn't a lot to change um, but there were still questions like uh, I, I don't know if I've talked about this with Michael in the earlier part that survived so this might be repetitive but 
Um, one of the first sequences that I worked on in Toy Story 3 was the, um, when the f- toys all get to the Sunnyside daycare. And initially, the, what I was boarding was um, that Woody stayed for a night just to check it out and to see, you know, what's up with all these kids. And so he ended up being part of the uh, initial onslaught of the, the preschoolers playing rough. And so then he, because of that, he got out. And I don't know if it was, I certainly didn't make the suggestion, but I have a feeling it was one of the other story artists when we were you know, pitching that sequence that said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Why, Woody's all about, you know, being with Andy and wanting to be with Andy. Why would he even stay? And so they changed it. They were like, no, you're right. We, it, it doesn't make any sense. And they, they moved it around. So um, Woody leaves almost as soon as they get there. And it's Buzz that's the one that gets played played rough with and realizes this is a mistake. That movie was so good. I, I feel like it's such a uh, it's such a good ending uh, to the trilogy that um, it's almost really it's impossible for me to to think what a fourth one would go into. Would it still be Andy? Would it still be the same toys? Yeah, I wish I could tell you. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm not, I don't want you to tell me. I mean, if you yeah. want to, uh, no, I can't. I, well, I can't. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he, he, can't, um, he can't talk about it. But, but I, the Toy Story has been doing these little uh, half-hour TV offshoots, yeah. mini stories, yes. and those seem to be really popular and successful, and and hopefully as good a quality as the films are too. So, right? No, they are. I mean, considering both of them. Well, no, take it back. The Toy Story of Terror. Pixar had a studio up in Canada that did, I think, the animation for that. Um, but that has since uh, closed down. So now the one that's coming out in December was animated completely here uh, at Pixar. So, um, yeah, the they animation quality and the story quality, because it still goes through, both of them go through the brain trust. They watch them, they give notes and stuff. So um, it maintains the quality. It only at a, The only difference is it has a... A shorter production schedule um, because it's only half an hour long, so it, it can sustain that. It's usually a, a little swifter, pro- a much swifter process. I mean, doing a half an hour story in and out, well, half an hour with commercials, so like a 22 minute story in and out is a completely different world than doing a feature length film. I mean, it's not just the fact that it's three times it's long, three times as long, it's almost like there's an exponential factor there of. of keeping of what has to go into it in order to keep that story full rich three-dimensional and all that right i i I also think that there's a a kind of pressure story-wise between a television episode and a feature whereas with, with a television episode you can tell small smaller stories i guess they don't have to be like these kind of epic life-changing events they can just be these kind of really interesting and cool stories whereas i feel like there's a pressure on the features to be telling these kind of like high stakes kind of right, stories that right. could ultimately change like i mean toy story 3 it, it changed spoiler alert it changed that the toys were no longer with andy and they went to bonnie so right um if you haven't seen toy story 3 yet you really shouldn't be listening to this podcast anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's really true now, I know that Pixar has a really interesting project coming up that I, um, what I've seen from it looks really interesting. It's called Inside Out. I think it's, it comes out next summer. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think the, just the idea itself, I think I was telling you about it, Mike, that yeah. it's this little girl, it takes place inside her mind, and, and all the characters are her different emotions. 
Yes, and and the the casting for the emotions is amazing too. Like, I mean, they've got um, it's Amy Poehler is playing Joy. Um, oh. You've got um, Mindy Kaling is playing Disgust. Um, got perfect. Uh, Bill Bill Hader <laughs> plays Fear. Ooh. Um, Louis Black plays Anger. Of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Casting. And I can't remember her name, but she was the woman in um, the Office that was. Um, she wore glasses and had kind of wavy hair. She was a little heavy set. Um, oh, oh that's, uh, that's uh, Phyllis uh, Smith. Yes, yes. She plays. She plays sadness. So oh, it's like she, a. It's she, like a, a. A lot of the people from the office. Then, so that's kind of cool. Kind of like almost like a mini reunion casting there. That's kind of fun. <laughs> yes. Yep. A little bit. And then Louis Black. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there, it's brilliant. I mean, I've I've seen. Um, the most recent versions of it, and it's it's just such a beautiful and powerful story, and funny, and um, really, I really can't wait for people to see it because it's it's just great. Cool, cool. And wasn't it based on uh, like an idea by um, like a Peter Peter Doctor Pete Doctor? Yes, he was. The idea basically stemmed from his own daughter, who um, oh. she I'm trying to remember she did a vo- she did a voice for Pixar. She did. Um, she wasn't Boo, was she? No, she wasn't. My oh, friend okay. Rob Gibbs' daughter was Boo. Okay. Um, I can't remember what she did, but she... Anyway, this, the way he tells the story is that when she was younger, she was just happy and fun, and then when puberty hit, suddenly she became very withdrawn. <laughs> and he was like... He wanted like what, wanted a window into her mind, like, what's going on in there to make that happen? So he made, created the story to as kind of a weird explanation. <laughs> Cool. It's fascinating how, how kids end up uh, informing your, your creative process. Right. Well, it's the, um, the other story, um, Finding Nemo, was inspired by Andrew Stanton's son. They oh. were they were walking to the park, and his son um, kept jumping off, walking off the curb, and Andrew kept trying to keep him, like, yeah, stay on the curb, trying to protect him. And he, at that time, realized he, he's not always going to be there to, to keep his son safe, and so... He wanted to tell a story about that, and so that's where Finding Nemo came from. Nemo, Nemo, Nemo. <laughs> that's fascinating. Do you uh, do you watch um, other forms of animation? Like, do you, are you a fan of stop motion animation or Japanese animation? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, anime Ghibli. Um, I uh, one of my favorites uh, animes is Fully Cooly. Um, oh, I love that one. It's a, it's a short, like six episode one. Right, but uh, but I love I I'm a big fan of animation that really pushes the boundaries of animation and does and because one of the things that Brad Bird usually always talks about when you've got a story and you're doing it in animation is like why are you why is it being animated it, it needs like I I mean not to not to denigrate um, another movie but when I look at like Pocahontas and I watch that and it's a beautifully done movie and the animation is nice but I keep wondering like why why did they need to animate this it's just it could have been done live action mm. and so yeah there's no specific um, magical or otherwise element to it that needed to be animated other than right. maybe some talking animals or whatever yeah. but but yeah, they, and they don't even really the animals don't even really talk to they they, they just kind of hang out kind of like uh, with a lot of the animals who didn't have voice roles in Bambi they just kind of hang out right right so i i feel like i i really love um animation that pushes um, a visual sense and, and is really kind of 
trippy in a way. Um, I just, I, I'm a real, I don't know if you've watched it, but there's a series on Cartoon Network that just finished called Over the Garden Wall, which was amazing, really beautiful. Um, I've, never, I've never seen it. Oh, it's it's um, nine episodes, um, and each one's a half an hour, and it was just, it was, they actually aired it over five days. It, it was amazing, and it was so not unexpected in like how charming it was and how non-commercial it was. It was just very uh, quirky. Uh, so I highly recommend that. Um, but I also, I like stop motion. Um, I like all kinds of animation. I think that's why I wanted to work in it because it's just such a wide open medium to do almost anything. I agree. It's an, it's an amazing craft. It's incredibly difficult. It takes a lot of discipline and years to get good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I myself don't have the patience. Uh, I grew <laughs> well, up thinking, yeah, I grew up thinking I would be like a, uh, an artist because mm-hmm. I, I remember getting those uh, books on how to draw, like you know, uh, Daffy Duck and, and right. Bugs Bunny and all that stuff. When I was very little, and I was always drawing stuff. I went to visual arts school. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! But, cool. Yeah, I quickly realized how hard it is. <laughs> well, honest, honestly, uh, that's the reason why I'm a story artist, because I don't have the patience for it either. Um, yeah, a- animators, I, when I first started on The Simpsons, I was a layout artist, which is just the key poses in animation. And even that, for me, was very kind of too, too much into the minutia and and the kind of the smallness of the... the Movement of the characters and the kind of the subtlety—it was too subtle for me. I want—I wanted the bigger picture stuff. And I—not to say that there isn't something. When I watch a beautifully animated scene, I'm aghast, and I—I I love some of the the layout work that's done on The Simpsons, or even just animation in general. But for for me, I—I I couldn't. I didn't have the patience for just doing like, hey, look at all this animation that took me a week, and it's a minute of screen time. Yes, yeah. it's yeah, so. the, the other hard thing that we we've discussed with other people on the podcast is not only drawing things uh, well, but drawing them consistently. Yeah, and yeah, that, that's, and that's incredibly hard, you know. It is incredibly hard, and so that that's why I chose to do story and storyboard because it it doesn't have to look good all the time um, because someone else. Down, it's the very beginning part of the process, so someone else down the line is going to clean it up and make it <laughs> better. <laughs> hey, oh, um, <laughs> sorry, um, someone just walked by the, the yeah, webcam. That was Danny. Um, so, uh, <laughs> um, hey, let's. One thing we didn't talk about the other day, and, and Ash touched on it briefly. Let's talk a little bit about Mission Hill. Um, oh yeah, that was a real. Um, You've done that after we had already met. I think you were you already working on The Simpsons when you did that, or had you already left The Simpsons, or were you about to get on The Simpsons? Or I had left The Simpsons. I basically because I I was a storyboard supervisor on The Simpsons, and Mission Hill was starting in the offs in the, like the hiatus time of The Simpsons, and so I was looking for something else to do. Plus, um, Mission Hill was looking for directors because the way they they were setting their process up exactly like The Simpsons, where they had. A supervising director, and then they had a, a pool of um, maybe I think like six or seven directors that would direct two or three episodes during the season. So I wanted that opportunity, and so I I talked to Lauren McMullen, who was the supervising director, and she liked my work. and And Bill Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein, as you know, were showrunners on The Simpsons, and they they had actually asked me if I wanted to work on Mission Hill as well. 
They're like, we've got this new show. We think you'd be really great. And I said, well, can I direct on it? And they were like, okay. Now, that's jo- just, that's uh, Josh MST3K Weinstein, yes? I don't know. I don't think yes. so. Yes. Is it really? Josh yeah, because he was the I original didn't... other other bad evil doctor and the original Tom Servo. Really? Yeah, before before they brought on TB's Frank, yes. Wow. But there are there are more than one Josh Weinstein, I know that. I know that too, but I, I, I can neither confirm nor deny that because I didn't know that about him if it if he did do that. So uh, heavy set glass, to him. Heavy set what? glasses, kinda curly hair on top. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Josh Weinstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the he was the original uh, co-creator of MST3K with Joel Hodgson back in Minnesota, and uh, he was the original Tom Servo and the original other. Uh, after it was only, he was only on season one, and wow. then they brought in uh, they brought in Frank and um, uh, yeah, and then he went on to do other stuff. He did Mission Hill and he he did some other produced and directed some other shows, and then at one point he directed a play. That I saw, that I think was Dave Allen Gruber doing a solo play. I don't remember. But yeah, <laughs> I, I just want to say um, one of the things that really um, I love about them is that they're really funny, and I love the way they. But Bill and Josh wrote the seasons of The Simpsons and dialogue. But I learned something interesting from them, uh, from unfortunately one of their failures. But they, um, so they wrote Mission Hill, and I, which I think was underappreciated. But then they went on to direct, to write and supervise a live action show called The Mullets. Yeah, and mm. it was not good. Um, and I watching it, I realized that they didn't change anything about the way they wrote. It was just that their dialogue coming out of live action people wasn't as funny. And made me realize one of the strengths of animation is because it's a simple, because it's simplified, and you, you as an audience member, kind of filling in information, almost kind of overly identifying with the characters. It, it's easier for you to accept kind of um, over cartoon, like exaggerated dialogue from them. So, so it was an each for example. Yeah, it was, it's interesting. That's, to that's, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting observation because I think that's why uh, I think the uh, the same thing happened with uh, with the Tick. Yes, yes. The cartoon's amazing, but then the live action show didn't really hit the mark. Although they're bringing that back, there's going to be a new Tick uh, live action with Warburton and Carbonell and and everybody. I read about that. Yeah, it's going to be on like uh, Hulu or something, right? Yes, I believe it's a Hulu exclusive. Oh, yeah, I think Mission Hill was one of those shows that when I was I was like maybe twelve when I first watched it, but it was the first mature cartoon that I ever saw. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that alongside with uh, Doctor Cat and Duckman, yeah, those were the three shows that I used to like stay up at night and watch, and I didn't understand half of it, <laughs> but it, they were amazing shows, man. And I, I sort of miss that type of animation. In today's world, I don't one, think it one of my favorite things about Mission Hill was the whack job color scheme. I mean, the whole yeah. the show, the whole show, other than other than not having a black background, the whole show looked like a headshot poster. You know, yeah, with people with fluorescent green hair or blue hair. Or, looking at Dan Klaus and, and kind yeah, of underground totally, comics and stuff. Totally. Like that. that Lauren, the supervising director, her her um, goal was to 
get the colors as close to FCC allowed saturation as possible. <laughs> um, and there is, there is there, there actually is a, a FCC law about how saturated you can have your colors on TV. Otherwise, it starts to bleed through the channels. Yeah. <laughs> so or something like that. So That's funny. It, it was as close as they could get. There. I still have my Mission Hill T-shirt out in the garage. What? Yeah, I still have my my powder blue Mission yeah. Hill shirt. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. It, oh, one other, um, it's not a very um, exciting piece of behind the scenes, but originally Mission Hill was called the Downtowners. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there are a lot of like posters for Downtowners. And then MTV came out with their cartoon, The Downtowners, um, which lasted about as long as Mission Hill did. Yeah. But, oh, MTV. There were uh, quite MTV, a few of those. But, that they, were... they came out before us, and so we were like, oh, no. So we, we actually had a contest within this, um, the production, like, what are we going to name this show? And we finally came up with Mission Hill. That's nice. I mean, actually, MTV, that, it's an inter- that's an interesting company, man. I, I don't know what they're... why they went down the path they decided to go to in the mid-90s, but... Liquid animation or liquid television was it? Yeah, yeah. Liquid that television. was amazing, man. That's what really turned me on to, um, you know, like all different kinds of animation. From there, I started watching anime and stuff like that. But I remember uh, the head mm-hmm. and uh, Eon Flux. Ma- the Max. The Max. The yeah. Max was amazing as well. Yeah, uh, and then the and then coupled with that, off of television was your Spike and Mike's animation festival, and and there was a lot of that in the '90s and 2000s, and right. I don't know if it was there. There might have been like a technological availability that allowed more people to do, or more people going to film school. Who knows that gave them more access to be able to do their own animation and. Put out their own shorts and stuff, and yeah. um, you know, I mean, we, out of Spike and Mike's, we got Beavis and Butthead and Ren and Stimpy, and you know, shows like that. And there was a lot of really good, really truly edgy, different, insane type of animated shows in the '90s and into the 2000s. So, yeah, it's it's kind of sad in a way because now it's cool and sad that there's so much um, ability for anybody that makes a short to be able to put it out there now with the internet that a lot of those kind of film festivals have gone away because um, yeah you don't you to you can just access it online and, and watch it there as opposed to having to go to a movie theater where as back in the 90s the only place you could see crazy animation was on spike and mics and then liquid television but even then liquid television was kind of uh, stayed compared to Spike and Mike. True, true, very true, very true. Um, going well, on, recent cartoons that I that I think um, measure up to those uh, of the nineties and, and early two thousands. Now, one of them is called uh, Snooper Jail. Yeah, Snooper <laughs> Jail is crazy. And there was another one called um, Ugly Americans. Uh, I haven't seen Ugly Americans. I've seen Ugly Americans. Um, that one was all right. Super Jail's all right. I really like. I really like BoJack Horseman. Oh, that's a very, very funny yeah. show. And Bob, Bob's Burgers is pretty awesome. Yeah, too. Bob's Burgers. My Danny's a real big fan of Bob's Burgers. Can I tell you something about Bob's Burgers that it's hard for me to get into that show, and it's a really weird reason why. Um, one of the things in animation is there are mouth charts that allow overseas <laughs> animators to animate the mouths to, to go along with the dialogue. And um, 
to make an S sound or certain sounds, you see teeth. Bob's Burgers, the characters don't have teeth. No. And, and, <laughs> no. and for some reason, I can't get around that. It's like I'm watching it and I'm looking for the, the mouths to go along with the sounds and the, the teeth don't come in. And I'm like, why? Why don't they have teeth? What? And, and that one little thing has kept me from really enjoying that show because I know a lot of people that work on it and I know it's funny, but I just I keep seeing that going, ah, why are they doing that? I gotta say something, Christian. You sound like like H. John Benjamin, man. Who's H. John Benjamin? The guy who voices Bob, Bob and Archer, uh, and uh, also the he's the he's the comic store nerd on Family Guy too. Uh, yeah, oh. I sound a little bit like him. Yeah, that's funny. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> you know, now I won't stop thinking about the fact they don't have teeth whenever I. Have. <laughs> <laughs> Always show your teeth. So then, after after Mission Hill, uh, did is that when you started at Disney? And and yep. so, how soon into your Disney experience were you able to then develop your own show, aka uh, Fillmore? Well, okay, um, that was immediate. And let me tell you about Fillmore. Um, so, the guy that I created with helped create Fillmore. He he actually came up with the idea, and he came to me. Because we had worked together on Bongo Comics. He had been an editor at Bongo Comics and then went on to be a writer on Pepper Ann. And so we had a good working relationship. And he said, I have this idea for Shaft in middle school. Can you help me design the characters? And he gave me a, a picture of a friend of his that he wanted to kind of look at. And I, I came up with a, the sidekick. And um, together we went to Disney and we pitched the show. And they they bought it. So the the guy who... He came up with the idea. His name is Scott Gimple, and I don't know if you guys oh, yeah. recognize that name. Oh yeah, I'm well aware of that guy. Yeah, yeah. The Walking Dead now. So. Yes, he yes, does. He's he this, does. He's the uh, head of story on The Walking Dead. Wow, which is a, okay. quite a leap from from that is from crazy Disney animation to <laughs> zombies. Wow. Uh, yeah. So he and that he was great to work with. He was really fun. Was he as, um, real quick question, was he as straight-laced suit and tie back then as he is now? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. He was sweater vests. That he's just that guy. He's For that a guy. guy that works in such a fun profession, he is so <laughs> downplayed. He is so reserved. Yep. It's, that's, that's, re- I mean, he just comes across as this guy who's extremely disciplined. He is. He and he's you know, extremely disciplined. Very serious about he's everything. He's very um, methodical. Street and now he's Bible. writing full-on episodes for for Walking Dead as well. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I, I will say one of the things that he j- just might be hard for him is like one of the things that I found working with him on Fillmore is that he's very um, word-oriented, and he he really he he's not he's not a, as great a visual. He he may have changed in the years, but he was not a great visual thinker. He was great at dialogue and great at coming with like word jokes and things like that like coming out of the Simpsons he was all about you know like putting funny words on a mug or you know, like a funny sign and so I I feel like for Walking Dead I've, I've heard some of the criticisms being that they like there's a lot of talking <laughs> and um, yeah that, that's very typical of, of Scott's style so uh, I don't know I, I think our working relationship was really great because we I think we balanced each other out really well whereas I was thinking about the, like a lot of the visual components, and he was thinking about the characters and how they the dialogue worked, and especially in a cop drama. Oh um, yeah, yeah, it was very important. So I, don't know, I thought it worked really well. 
Yeah, I remember watching that with Trevor a few times, uh, a few Saturdays here and there, back when it was on, when he was really young, so. How was it uh, <clears throat> uh, developing um, uh, the main character, what was his name, Cornelius? Cornelius Fillmore. Um, it was great. I mean, one of the things that we were doing was that we were we were aware, but not aware, that we were making a main a, a main character, African American character on a Disney cartoon. I think we were probably one of the first for Disney. Um, but at the same time, we were really aware that we didn't want it to be that to be the about him being African-American, he was just happens to be African-American, and we had, you know... Uh, well, if you're going to if you're gonna do characters. Shaft in middle school, it's got to be a, a, a young brother, so, you know, yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, a young brother, and, and he was, and uh, Orlando Brown was the um, the kid who voiced Fillmore, and he he really brought it, and, um, and Tara Strong did um, Ingrid, who, she's also does the voice of um, Raven on the Teen Titans. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Very familiar um, with Tara Strong. Yeah, she's, she's got a lot of credits. But we're, speaking of speaking of Teen Titans, man, that's my guilty pleasure. Oh, we love watching that. We we watch that show <laughs> with, with our daughter and after she's gone to sleep. <laughs> well, it's I, so good. I feel I feel like I'm a little guilty. Like maybe I'm too old. Oh, but it's just no. So good, there's something. Yeah, so there's something. I, I find it funny that how, the people that are upset that they're kind of. <laughs> Bastardizing their treasured, you know, Teen Titans from the the earlier version, like yeah, you, know, they, you gotta these characters are worthy of respect. Like yeah, but this is a funny cartoon. It's a very yeah. funny cartoon. I mean, and then the original cartoon was funny too. You yeah, know, it, it was it, it, it was a little funny, bit more. It was a little bit more serious, but but yeah, yeah. It was a little more serious, but it was better. It was I still really funny. When uh, Robin has his kind of. Uh, um, Fantasies, and you cut back to the old animation of him. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think just, I, I like I like seeing Cyborg get destroyed or whatever. Uh, yeah, whatever happens, <laughs> which is uh, almost always little, something horrible. I, and I love when Cyborg walks around just his head and it's the wires, just his body underneath. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that one episode. And since we're talking about some Titans, whatever, uh, where they. Um, um, I think it's him and Beast Boy. They go to, to a pizza place and they stare at the floor for like fifty years, yes, or something. And they go to the future. <laughs> yeah, because they were they were challenged like whoever breaks the stair gets that slice, and they stay there for fifty years. And then they, <laughs> they see Robin and he's Nightwing and he's married with to uh, Batgirl, and they've got a kid. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Every time Cyborg uh, heard the word responsibility, he freaked yep. out. <laughs> that was so cool. Yeah, there was there was one I watched the other day that had future Robin. It was basically him as Nightwing, and he finds his apartment in the city, and he's in this little hobbit hole type apartment, and he's just like, "Oh, hey, future me, what's going on?" You know, <laughs> they did explore all kinds of really weird areas. I mean, they kind of did that with Batman Beyond too, but yeah, I do. Have, I do think that we're in a great era of cartoons right now, as far as. Such an openness to embrace different styles. Like sure. You look at Super Jail. You look at sure. Archer, and you look at um, Adventure Time, and just like this. But back, like when The Simpsons was out, Simpsons was the first time they there was any kind of like abstracted characters on television, and uh, now, and and then after that, it kind of washed into a very kind of staid animation. And then it kind of broke with SpongeBob, but now it just seems like. 
studios are embracing. Hey, you got a quirky style? Let's make you. Let's make you. Oh yeah, all Let's the Saturday, all the Saturday morning cartoons now, which are not on network TV anymore. There was actually just a news article that the like three weeks ago was the first time on ABC that there were yeah. no cartoons on Saturday mornings since yeah. like 1956 or something like that. I it know, was crazy. But so now, but also, now all the Saturday morning cartoons are on cable. So right, but also there was there was um, especially in the uh, early aughts, I felt like there was a push by a lot of the studios to get away. Even Cartoon Network was thinking about getting away from animation and doing these kind of live action teen sitcoms. But I think they that that's starting to die, and it seems like they're starting to head back toward animation, especially Cartoon Network. Yeah, I, I don't mind the the live action teen, not necessarily sitcom, but I like the I miss the uh, the live action seventies Lou Scheimer produced. Uh, you know, I like I like me some Isis and Shazam Hour, and I like uh, me Electric some. Woman and oh yeah, Sid and Marty Croft, uh, Hand of God, man. Oh, that's the great stuff right there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've got the oh, whole uh, I've got the whole HR Puffin stuff collection. So sweet. Yeah. I, you know what I miss though? I mean, I, I, guys, I wish I knew what you're talking about, but I guess, uh, <laughs> we're we're old. <laughs> That's what we're. <laughs> Can see this liver spots bursting on my hands, <laughs> <laughs> darling. Come here, and sit down, and I'll tell you about that old time show, The Super Friends. <laughs> and then the time they went to Earth too, they had Lex Luthor in the Holmeshbucher. Yeah. Oh, in my in my day, let me tell you that before they had the Wonder Twins, they had these two teenage kids that didn't have any superpowers. Yeah. They just kind of oh yeah, like, yeah, hey. Marvin and Wendy. Wendy. Oh my god. Oh, <laughs> and Wonder Dog. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Like, well, the... it's like you can hear the executives going like, "Okay, we've got all these super guys, but we need something for the teen kids to get interested in." What they were, we they're like the companion on Doctor Who. They were our window. And Doctor Who, I don't know if you guys are watching Constantine. We're not. I am watching. Oh, you are. I'm, I'm not, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I'm not going to talk about it. I'll say what I do miss. I miss the uh, the early Simpsons. How how the animation was like way different. It was like fluid. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe you can maybe you know Christian. Do you know who who was responsible for that animation style? Oh, uh, it was David Silverman uh, completely. He like if you look at some of his, he did some work before the Simpsons, especially like on the shorts. He two guys, um, Dave, David Silverman and I hope I said David Silverman. David Silverman. And Wes Archer were the basically the two guys that did all the shorts in the Tracy Ullman show uh, themselves, oh. and they're responsible for that weird all over the place animation. And it's interesting that how the animation evolved over the years because of I don't know they're trying to make it, especially when you've got a lot like you were saying when you've got a lot of people trying to draw the same way. A lot of things get homogenized because it's got to. Well, we need a model pack to see how the characters act, and if you give a lot of leeway to the animators to break that model, a lot of times they'll get it wrong. And so, to to make to meet the demands of a, a big production, you have to have a, a model pack, and, and the animation will get more and more homogenized and stayed until the point where it's got, it's a process. It's not like a kind of a magical um, hap- happenstance or any kind of like 
accidents or you know pushing boundaries. I mean, every now and then they will. Like I, I think anytime you see anything really amazing and creative, nine times out of ten, David will have stepped in. Like there's an episode where Homer goes on a, a kind of a mystical um, drug trip in the desert. Um, it's the title of the episode is Spanish, but um, David Silverman did all of the animation for that, um, the drug trip basically, <laughs> um, and uh, it's awesome. So, and, and also, if you saw the most recent Treehouse of Horror, um, the ghosts of the original Simpsons characters haunt the current Simpsons characters. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Very, it's really funny to see the two characters next to one another. And Homer starts to get uh, attracted to the ghost version of Marge from the first season. <laughs> the current Marge is like, oh, what are you doing? It's like, but Marge, it's you! <laughs> see, I, I, see, I stopped watching The Simpsons a while back, but I know that... Um... I, I, I caught this on a, on a blog a, a month or two ago. Don, uh, Don Hertzfeld did uh, the couch gag recently. Yeah. And uh, that was tribute to hell, man. Yeah. I, 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 it would be cool if, if they would give these artists, like, you know, creative freedom and, and let them do something cool in the episode, not just the couch gag. True, but I think it, it's, it's a fine line because you've got um, a network and you've got... I mean, I'll tell you the... They're the, the um, supervising um, writers and and uh, James L. Brooks really don't care what the studio what Fox says about you know how they're making the show. Like we're going to do it the way we want. But at the same time, I still think they feel like they've got a responsibility to deliver something that is you know palatable to a lot of like the majority of viewers, not just you know people that are really into kind of quirky. So I, I think it's pretty impressive of them to go out on a limb and allow these couch gags to be ha- to happen but I don't ever think you're going to see that within the episode really unfortunately unfortunately I mean, it's been running for how many how many seasons now 26 20 uh, ooh, I don't know I know, I know it passed 22 it, I think that, that's, 25. that's a huge uh, accomplishment yeah I, so and it's still clever. I mean, I, whenever I watch it, I don't watch it as much as I used to, but it, I still laugh, and I still think the jokes are clever, so. It's hard, though. I mean, you know, it, watching it now, and you, for, especially for people that have watched all the early episodes, it's hard not to compare it to what it used to be. Yeah, it is. So. Well, yeah, I think originally it was a show much more about Bart and 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 his misadventures, and then later there was this, sh- suddenly there was this shift over the course of a season and it became mostly about Homer, right. and and kind of stayed that way, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it's 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 kind of I, I kind of liken it to um, well, in a way that that for years Doctor Who has really focused on the Doctor, and then this series, this new series, focuses much more on Clara, and this this series, what's much more along the lines of what the first season, very first series was back in 1963, and it was much less about the Doctor and much more about Ian and Barbara and Susan. Is Moffat still uh, executive producing? Yes, and he apparently has signed on for yet another season. I was There was a new co-producer that was brought on who worked on Torchwood, uh, Children of Earth, 
And yeah. I think, I'm not sure if he worked on Miracle Day or not, but he also worked on the Sarah Jane Adventures. And he was brought on as a co-producer with Moffat. And we some of us were thinking that he was going to kind of take over Moffat's role and eventually become the showrunner. But Moffat has really dug his heels in. And actually, this series has been very unlike Moffat. There was no Crazy Time Paradox episode. There was no, uh, you know... They focused more on Clara, brought it more down to earth, and made the Doctor not the skinny, attractive young guy anymore. <laughs> this In the very first episode, he said, I'm not your boyfriend, and that was the best thing to happen to Doctor Who in since 2005, and this new series has been the best of the new series, in my opinion. I mean, I love David Tennant, and he, he knocked it out of the park a lot. But this is the first series that, from beginning to end, was good all the way through. And um, I know Ash, you weren't very happy with the very fin- the, the the final elements of the finale, uh, the t- second part of the finale. But I I did in the canon of Doctor Who, it fits in very nicely with with other things that have come before. And uh, I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody who hasn't seen it, but. Uh, <laughs> Capaldi, I hope. I hope. Can Capaldi. we talk about that for a little bit? Can we talk about the the um the kind of thing about spoilers? Oh, sure, sure. Because because we have this at work too, and there's got to be a statute of limitations. Sure. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Spoilers. Wholeheartedly. You know what I think, I think uh, if the movie came out, I, I I say you know four weeks. That's it, four weeks, that's even pushing a it. month. That's even pushing it. I think. I think of you know a, a TV a TV episode, a season. But that's the thing is you got everybody. That the thing that makes spoilers so such bullshit now is the fact that people are mass consuming uh, or uh, what, what's the term that they use the where they watch a whole season at one one shot. Binge watching. Yes, binge watching. People, everybody binge watches everything now instead of watching it week by week when it comes out uh, and. Yeah. Because of that, people are still expecting this element of control to where I'm going to consume this thing in the way I want it to, and fuck anybody who who fucks it up for me. And it's like if you're not going to watch it on a weekly basis, or watch it little bit by little bit, or win it right when it comes out, then then you know you're you're responsible. Our very first episode was called. uh, media destiny. You're in charge of your own media destiny. You're in t- charge of your own pop culture uh, uh, autonomy. If you don't want to hear don't. something, if you don't want to read something, if you don't want to whatever, then fucking don't look. Turn off. Don't get on Facebook. Don't do this. Don't talk to people about it. Walk out of the room and you hear a conversation starting in. Put your headphones on, whatever, and don't listen. But other than that, fuck you. That's how I, I feel about it. I'm really passionate about that. Uh, no, I, the, I'm the, passionate the one. Yeah, the one thing that really pisses me off, though, is not people ruining movies or whatever um, after they come out, but people that uh, break into sets and uh, yeah. record stuff and then put it online, and every news outlet can't resist talking about it, so you, you're eventually, you know, are going to learn... Or rele- that, you're releasing a script the, or releasing the pictures. Need ...for Batman versus Superman. Like, that's well, going to happen. As far as that's concerned, I think that the studios are complicit in that because I think they, 
I, I it's think publicity. Early on, when like any cool news came out, and a lot of like people were trying to get as much information early as they could, a lot of studios were resisting that, and they were like trying to shut people down and stuff. But then a lot of the studios started to realize, hey, this is a way we can do kind of free marketing, and so they started inviting the bloggers into the studios early on 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 set, and hey, look at this, and hey, this. I mean, he, look at J.J. Abrams and how he's manipulating the the dialogue about the next Star Wars by slowly releasing information and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I think that I, I hate it myself. I, I kind of would, I love it when a movie comes out and I haven't heard anything about it and I go and watch it like, wow, that's great. And it's so rare. It's so rare to be like, well, what's this movie about? I'm going to go see it. And I myself yeah. don't read movie blogs. Don't read I don't read, I don't listen, I don't watch Entertainment Tonight, I don't I don't do any of that stuff. Still hard to avoid, even not even that way. It's You're right. Hard. It's hard, but it's a lot easier. And <laughs> I go to the movies and I'm not disappointed. And uh, and if something gets spoiled, it doesn't end my universe. It doesn't right. it doesn't end ruin my day or ruin my movie going experience. But still I, I think that even trailers to a certain degree Oh man. Trailers are releasing yeah. a lot of yeah, major plot points in a trailer. A trailer is supposed to be a pi- a picture with a sideswipe in a world where blah 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 blah, blah coming this fall, and that's it. Right. Last night, I, my, um, Sheila and I watched um, the World's End, the Simon Pegg movie. Oh and yeah. When I, when I she didn't know anything about it. I had seen the trailer, so I knew that this is going to become a, like a fighting people with blood and right. blue blood and all that stuff. But for her, she had no idea. And so when that turn happened, she was like, what? <laughs> what? That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. On the, but on the opposite end, I was kind of disappointed because leading up to that, I thought, wow, this is a really great character movie about these guys. But that's what and, makes it so great. Yeah, but I, I kind of wish they had stayed with that. And yeah. They, they do to a certain extent, but I, I kind of... I felt like the sci-fi element of it was unnecessary. Well, it's kind of like from from *Dust Till Dawn*. It's two different movies, and that, that's a and that's a thing now too. Is is yeah. is make a drastic movie shift. Uh, Ash, your example uh, during the Marie Olsen episode was. Uh, as above, so below. It starts off being uh, one, you know, like an ar- like a we're sneaking in to do an archaeological thing or shoot a thing, and boom, we're, we found this gateway to hell, and everything goes to shit. So, right. you know, it's but it's. My point, though, is that I wonder how, if that movie would have done better or worse had they hidden the, the the twist from the trailers because so many people knew going into oh this I know this is going to happen at some I think point. I, I think I see what Christian's uh, trying to say and that's that you know, at least with uh, my example and um, other movies that I've done is like you know um, uh, yeah, like, uh, from dust till dawn and whatever they, they kind of sprinkle in elements throughout the movie that that kind of give you hints that oh something else might happen we're building towards something else but with um, world's end Nothing like nothing of that nature ever happens. Like it just, it just boom, it, it hits. Uh, the, the the shift is very much like a ninety degree turn. Very much, you know. Well, I remember. Uh, I remember being. You know, I remember being thirteen, and when when uh, when uh, Return of the Jedi came out, and I already knew, and somebody somebody spoiled it for me, and said said uh, Luke and Leia are sisters, 
or brother and sister, and 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 yeah, yeah, Luke and Lee are brother and sister, and Darth Vader's their father. And I was like, okay. And then I went to the movie, and it's like, okay, it didn't completely ruin the movie for me. True, but at the same time, I think that I'm more concerned about the studios releasing the spoilers. I and I think they're doing it to protect themselves. I think they're doing it because they're nervous that if a movie has such a big uh, surprise that audiences are going to, you know, be upset or, or, or not embrace the movie. And so they're releasing, they're slowly kind of trickling out information about their movies or putting it in the trailers just so our, it's, it's almost like coddling the audience. Like, well, we, we don't want to, like, make you too upset when you see this so we're gonna let you know everything about the movie so when you see it it won't be a big surprise like, I don't think that, but, but, but with movies like you know that have a big budget uh, it's a risk it's a financial risk look at yeah. like John Carter Disney lost, lost so many uh, so much money with that movie yeah. so you take an example like um, the, the, the the biggest example of how they're doing it wrong right now Amazing Spider-Man 2 I saw oh. the entire movie before I even went to the theater. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Well, personally, I get that you're nervous; you might lose money, but don't don't spoil everything. I saw like Gwen falling down. I all the major plot points were revealed in the you know TV spot or a trailer or then featurette or whatever. Personally, I think they should have kept the uh, Ben Affleck as Batman spoiler uh, a secret until the release of the film. You know, there <laughs> 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 would be one. It would be one. Ben Affleck. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, but it, it would have been you know one less thing to be angry about for the next year and a half. <laughs> well, here's and here's another thing, uh, just to continue this rant a little bit, is that like I I did not like um, Man of Steel. A lot of people and, didn't, and I know that, and, and because of that, I don't trust Zack Snyder. But I know that the trailer for Batman v Superman is going to be amazing. I'm going to watch it and be like, all right, I'll see that movie. And then I'm going to see that movie and I'm going to hate it. And I feel the same thing like with the Hobbit movies. Like the la- I did not like the last Hobbit movie because I felt like it was too long. There were all these kind of like, it was so padded in, in certain scenes that I, I left that movie angry. Like, I can't believe I watched that movie. So I was like, I'm not going to see the third Hobbit movie. And then the trailer for the third movie. <laughs> you got to go movie, see it. Like, yeah. Oh, all right, I'll see it. For me, for me, a lot. I, I I know a lot of people who feel exactly the way that you do. A lot of people don't like the Hobbit movies. For me, though, being such a huge, um, you know, stick an IV in my arm of Lord of the Rings on film with Peter Jackson. I've got all the extended DVDs. I've done the thirteen-hour marathon of all three films multiple times. Any chance, any chance to spend <laughs> any any time spent in that universe, good, bad, or otherwise, with Peter Jackson in that universe and those characters is is pleasure to me. So I enjoy, but just based on that, I enjoyed the first two Hobbit films immensely. Well, the the other thing that's upsetting to me is the um, the tone of the Hobbit movies compared. Like it seems like they're taking the Hobbit, which really is a much more lighthearted adventure, right, right. and yeah. trying to force the Lord of the Rings um, tone Gra- gravitas onto it. to it. Yeah. Oh, and this last one looks even darker. Yeah, 
The Battle of the Five Armies? What five armies? Who, when, where did five armies come from? Where did that I'm happen? just going to watch the Rankin Bass Hobbit. And <laughs> and <laughs> yes, it's, yes, it's, the, the, the Ralph Bakshi. I went in very much knowing that this was not the Hobbit, and this was just an excuse to keep uh, you know, making money or, or exploring the, the tone of Lord of the Rings. So I kind of went in with low expectations, and that's what I do, actually. I'm, I'm not a happy person anymore. i got to keep my expectations low so I'm not disappointed. I, I am kind of surprised they are not making another Harry Potter movie, um, regardless of whatever J.K. Rowling wants. I'm surprised they, the studios didn't, well, you know, these movies made a lot of money, just like you know, with The Lord of the Rings. They're like, how can we make another Harry Potter movie without her? You know, I'm, I'm surprised that it hasn't happened yet. They are making a new movie, man. What? It's called they Fantastic are. Beasts and Where to Find Them. Oh, yeah, is yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Is it in the Harry Potter universe? Yes. Yeah. Yes, they're, right, they're yeah. actually oh, making God, a. Right. They're actually making. They're making a whole yeah, series of that. They're making a whole series is she, of that. Is, is she involved at all? Yeah, she's yeah. she's some executive producer. It's based on a book that they used inside Harry Potter at Hogwarts. It's based on that book, and it's and it's because it's it's. Hey, it's, is it a dead horse over there? It's basically the the story of of uh, who was the. Um, the phony baloney that 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 uh, can uh, oh shit the phony baloney teacher in the fourth move thir- fifth movie whatever and uh, yeah Gilderoy Lockhart it's basically a guy like that who really is actually going out and uh, taming these beasts and doing research on all these magical creatures and researching these books and that's what it's about. Yeah, I think okay. uh, Newton something. Yeah, I'm down. I'm I'm good with that. So, well, we're over an hour. Um, Christian, uh, where can uh, uh, you said you had a Twitter? I do, I do. Um, it's Chromatary. C R O M A N T A R Y. Cool. And did did you? I don't remember if you had a website or not. Or uh... I have I have a Tumblr. I have. Uh, you know what? Since we're doing this on my computer, I can kind of quickly look at what my, <laughs> I don't know what my Tumblr uh, login is. Um, but I do have uh, SoundCloud, uh, Christian Roman. Oh, that's right. The music we we didn't talk. Uh, we did talk last time, but we didn't this time. Uh, um, the some of the the material we lost was about your music that you had created. Right. So uh, yeah, I, I do my own kind of music stuff. So, oh, it's um Tumblr dot com slash blog. Slash Chromatary, C R O M A N T A R Y. Cool. And um, uh, real. You see my newest thing. I, I did. Uh, my daughter gave me an assignment. She wanted to see karate broccoli, and so <laughs> I, I did a little animation of broccoli uh, doing karate. Cool. Nice. Looking forward to that. <laughs> and that's a, that brings new uh, new dimension to chopping broccoli. Exactly. Ah, yeah. yeah. Broccoli. Um, so, uh, real quick, what are you recommending again? You had mentioned that there was an animated movie or a series or something last oh, time, and you yeah. couldn't remember the name um, of it. Unfortunately, it's kind of it's disappeared. But the Tales of Princess, and find the name. Uh, tale, the Tale of Princess Kaguya. K A G U Y A. I can never pronounce it. Kaguya. Ghibli film. It was. Um, Made in 2013, but it just got released here about a month ago, and it's actually kind of gone. But I'm sure it'll be out on DVD. But it was, uh, it's just 
gorgeous and I'll put up um, a link to it on the blog post and uh, and what was the other thing you recommended earlier today oh yeah over the garden wall okay Cartoon Network great great and I'll put up a I'll put up a link to that as well Ash do you have any I would recommend Inside Out which is coming out uh, in the summer oh and you said last week you had also that you were looking forward to Hero 6 yeah I saw it it was great and how was it it was it was great. It was um, the the world they created was so amazing, and it was just watching it. You like, I want to visit there. Yeah, uh, I want to go to there. The story was compelling. The, the characters were really emotional and, and and resonated. It was it was great. I really enjoyed it. And I really, it's one of those situations where that I know from insider information that the um, movie about a year ago had story trouble. And there was like an all hands on deck. We got to fix this. So I'm really amazed at what they did, and I'm curious what space the story was in a year ago to make everybody panic because it turned out great. I'm sure it'll be on the DVD extras. It was fascinating how it beat uh, Interstellar at the box office. Yeah, yeah. Well, Interstellar is a three hour movie, so if you, I you can, I think uh, just by sheer uh, time alone. <laughs> Big Hero 6 was screened more often than Interstellar. So well, also, I think people are saying that second week out that Interstellar is not as, as wonderful as they were hoping it would be. So, um. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's got a lot of Nolanisms. Uh, the main one uh, is too much exposition. It's, it's a very polarizing movie. Play, you know? yeah, it's, it's a very polarizing movie. I know a lot of people, some people at work that just didn't like it at all, and other people they thought it was like worthy of 2001. So hmm. it's oh, all hell no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Ash, uh, uh, what are you recommending this week? I really wanted to recommend Dumb and Dumber too, but it's not as good as. I'm but... sorry, you wanted to recommend that? <laughs> I mean, I wanted to like it. I wanted to see it yesterday, and I was like, for the first half, I was rooting them on. I'm like, okay, just as long as you stay this good. But then it got worse, and uh, uh, not as funny. Yeah, I, um, I can't get through the first ten minutes of the original, so I, I've never I can't seen get it. through the trailer. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, there's a, there's a place in my heart for that. Anything else, Ash? Any any other music or recommendations or anything? Or? Yeah, I have uh, I have two more recommendations. Uh, there's this cartoon called uh, Rick and Morty. Oh yeah, uh, that's pretty funny. It's, it's this you know mad scientist uh, that drags his grandson on crazy sci-fi adventures. They travel through time and whatever. It's really funny. Yeah, that's really funny. We had there was another recommend there was a something that we had otherwise that was linked to that either somebody who worked on it also did something else or something but I'm not it's escaping me now. Um, see, uh, series eight of Doctor Who just wrapped up, so I'm recommending if once you get the chance to go back and uh, for, at least for now you're probably going to have to go and find obt- quote unquote obtain that in through alternative avenues until it uh, comes out on Netflix or uh, or DVD. Um, musically, uh, I've been kind of all, all over the map lately, so too much to really pin down any one thing. But uh, that wraps it up for this week. Christian, thanks again, and thanks for your patience in uh, oh, dealing with. Real quick, before oh. we go, before we go, <laughs> before we go, just one second. I want—I just want to reach out to our listeners and um, ask them to uh, reach out to us, however they can. If, if they don't have a Twitter or Facebook or for whatever reason they don't, you know, they're not big on social media, they can email us. Uh, we have a Gmail account. It's uh, something to xp at gmail dot com, and just let us know what you think of the show. If you think we should talk about whatever, uh, if you have any suggestions, yeah, that's and yell yeah, that's us. too much. You know, call Western Union, send a telegram. <laughs> send a telegram. 
Um, as long as it, there's a cute little tap dancing telegraph opera. No. Um, so, no, that's, uh, Ash, that's exactly what I was getting to. Uh, please, uh, everybody, find us on uh, find us on Twitter. Please follow us. Uh, find us on Facebook. Please like our fan page. Uh, go on to iTunes and write a review. Uh, uh, we haven't gotten to the point where we were, can advertise stars for our podcast yet because not enough reviews have been written. We've got two and hopefully a third one coming along here shortly. But uh, please go also, do that. We're only, uh, we're, we're only going to read the five-star reviews. So if you have something bad to say, make sure it's five yeah. stars and we'll read it. Well, that lead... Yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, then we have to pay. Um, yeah. <laughs> extortion. Um yeah, and of course, yes, email us at something2xp at gmail.com. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you with recommendations, suggestions, uh, corrections of false information, because we're not perfect, we're just nerds. And uh, always remember, please be kind. The Something Something Experience podcast was conceived and produced by Ash Jones and Michael John Simpson. Intro music, Ways to Change Faces, and outro music, Scorpio 37, was written, produced, and provided by the talented Sebastian Ciceri. You can find us online as Something2XP on iTunes, WordPress, and YouTube. Please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. You can also reach us at something2xp at gmail.com. We invite your feedback. Please be kind. 